Good morning, everyone. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for being a part of uh, our Parsha class that we have on a weekly basis. This week is Parshat Kitavo, and uh, you have the source sheet available to you if you are on SoundCloud. You have the source sheet available to you uh, by looking at the messages. Similarly, on YouTube, there will be uh, the opportunity for you to download the source sheet or my website as well. There's a link that you can use to reach the source sheet. So uh, I've titled this um, particular class Written in Stone. You're going to see in a moment why. But first of all, let me thank Aaron and Lillian Fuchs and Jason Fuchs who have sponsored this share in memory of Lillian's mother, Sylvia Glatter, Zelda Baslea, Aleha Shalom, whose yard site is on the 14th of Elul, and Hashem Shetab Aliyah, we should be Zeichet Sitriyas HaMesim. We're going to be talking about a very curious, um, very interesting, um, I would say mitzvah, but it's not quite a mitzvah, because when you use the word mitzvah, people tend to imagine that it is included among the 613 mitzvahs of the Torah. This one isn't really, but it is a mitzvah. It's a mitzvah that was given to the Jewish nation by Moshe Rabbeinu um, just in the moments or in the, in the period before he was about to pass on and they were going to embark on the quest for the promised land. They were about to conquer the land of Israel at that time, Eretz Kanaan. They were going to turn it into Eretz Israel. But at this stage, there were many instructions which were instructions uh, for the long term, strategy, and observances that would have to be kept once they reached wherever it is they were going to live. But in addition to that, there were also commandments that were, you know, let's call them for the sake of a better word, housekeeping matters. That means things that needed to be done that were going to enable the transition from being a nation that was, uh, I guess, in isolation they were, they were quarantined from the world between the period after the exodus from Egypt and before the conquest of Eretz Israel. They were for 40 years in the wilderness and they were their own unit. They were their own pod. And now they were about to re-enter into the real world, which they'd never inhabited or hadn't inhabited for many, many years. And in fact, none of the people who were going to embark on the conquest of Eretz Israel had ever been in the real world because these were all the children and grandchildren of those who had come out of Mitzrayim and they were now going to become part of the real world. So there were various housekeeping matters that needed to be addressed in this particular moment. In fact, it didn't just stop with Moshe Rabbeinu. Yehoshua as well, right at the beginning of his leadership, also took care of various matters that needed to be done. Uh, most famously, he insisted, of course, that everybody who was going to enter into Eretz Israel had to have a Brit Milah. They'd not had a Brit Milah for all that time since um, immediately after, after the exodus from Egypt. And for 40 years, there'd be no circumcision. So that was something that Yeshua took care of. But we're going to see here in Parshat Kitavo, it's right at the beginning of Perek Chavzayin, um, we're going to read through Psukim 1 through 8, and you're going to see a particular mitzvah um, that took place at that period, uh, or was commanded, was given over in that period. And in fact, on three occasions, this mitzvah was fulfilled, and then never again, or at least not in the format that it was delivered here. 
And there is, I wouldn't say disagreement about this, there's a long Gemara in Soita, which describes and discusses exactly what it was that this mitzvah entailed and how it was carried out. And there's not universal agreement as there never can be in that period of time records were very minimal the only record they really had of this mitzvah was what is written here and what's written later on in Yehoshua and therefore the details had become somewhat garbled over the period of time until the Talmudic period it's not a inconsiderable period of time 1500 years and therefore the Gemara in Sota is a little bit um, uh, how to go? it's a bit fuzzy on the details although obviously the people who present the details in the way that they do do so quite definitively but we're presented with a fuzzy picture but I, I want to try and draw some sense out of these psukim and convey to you lessons not only in the history of the Jewish people during that period but also lessons that have an effect a profound impact on our lives what is this mitzvah? I mean, if it's recorded in the Torah, even if it doesn't have any direct consequence on our day-to-day -day lives in a practical sense, let me, I'll tell you, explain to you what I mean by that. We know that, for example, you need to put a mezuzah on your door, right? We need to make tefillin and we need to make mezuzahs. We say it in Shema every day. So if you say Shema, you know you have to wear tefillin, you have to put a mezuzah on your door. That's a practical application of a mitzvah that we're familiar with from a religious scriptural text. However, what we're about to read is a very similar idea. You have to write the Torah down, but you're not putting it on your door and you're not putting it on your arm or your head. Okay, so those that aspect of this mitzvah is lost. However, it was done somewhere by someone and um, even if it has no practical application, there must be a reason for it to be recorded in the Torah because the Torah doesn't contain any superfluous material. Okay, so that's the backdrop to this year. Let's read through the Psukim, through source one. And Moshe um, commanded, um, or you can either say that Moshe commanded or that Moshe brought in the Zikne Yisrael and they were also commanded, the elders of Israel. It's a curious expression. We don't usually see the Zikne Yisrael being included in a mitzvah in this way. So you're going to see that that is significant. Um, they commanded the people, Lamar, and this is what they said, You must keep all of the mitzvahs which I am commanding you today. Okay, what does that mean? So generally speaking, I, I gave a, a share a few weeks ago in which I spoke about this concept of the word mitzvah being given over in a singular form rather than mitzvah in the plural. But essentially what this posuk seems to be telling you, what Moshe Rabbeinu is telling the Jewish nation, with the Zikne Yisrael, the 70 Zikanim standing alongside him, is that there are mitzvahs in the Torah, and I'm commanding you today that you need to observe them. They're not just mitzvahs that are there to be framed and put in a beautiful gold frame and hang on your wall. These are mitzvahs that have practical day-to-day -day application. Okay? Vahoya. And it shall be On the day that you will pass over the Jordan River to the land which Hashem, your God, gives to you. What should you do? You should 
erect for yourself great stones and you should coat them with plaster. Very interesting mitzvah, right? The kosavta aleim is called divrei ha-toyra and you should inscribe, it's, the word kosavta means write, but it means inscribe on them this entire, or the words of this, or of this whole Torah, but of Recha, when you have passed over, in order that you shall go into the land which Hashem, your God, gives to you, it's a land that's flowing with milk and honey, as your um, as Hashem, your God, has spoken to your forefathers for you. In other words, this land was uh, promised to your forefathers, to your ancestors, to your forebears on your behalf. So there's a lot of um, conditions in this sentence which need unpacking. Because there's a lot of information in this sentence. You know, Hebrew has this ability of connecting lots of different phrases, which can be one, two, three words. And actually, uh, they, they add a lot of meaning. In English, you need to do a lot of explaining to understand just one short phrase in Hebrew. So I'm not going to go over this posuk again, but I'm just going to tell you that it's a complicated posuk, and we're going to see in the period of time we're going to be spending together today why that posuk has so much meaning, a meaning that actually can convey something to us meaningful in our lives today. Pasuk Dalad. And it shall be when you have passed over the Jordan River. You should erect these stones. That I am commanding for you today. Bahar Eval. On Mount Eval. And you should cover them in plaster. Okay, it's easier, I guess, to write in plaster. By the way, there's some disagreement as to whether it was written in plaster on the plaster or whether it was written on the rock itself and the plaster covered over the writing. A little bit unclear. It's ambiguous in the posuk. And there, where you establish, you erect these stones, you put them up, you should build a, an altar to God, to God your God, it will be an altar of stones, Loisonif alehem barzel, and uh, you shouldn't put any iron onto these um, onto these rock altars. Avonim shleimos tivne es mizbach Hashem. There should be entire stones that uh, are going to build this mizbach Hashem aleikecha. Vahalisal of oilos lashem aleikecha. And on that day when you erect these stones, you put them up. These stones which on which are written the Torah. You should bring. Carbonos, uh, oilos, burnt offerings to God, your God. And you should also um, slaughter shlomim, which is a carbon, which is a more of a celebratory carbon. It's not one which is burnt completely. It's one which you, as it were, share with God. And you should eat there in that place. It's going to be a very festive occasion. And you should celebrate before God your God. And finally, this is the last posuk. Not good enough for you to write on the rocks, on the stones, the words of the Torah. They have to be written. What is the words? What do the words Bahir mean? It means very clearly.
So there's a lot of information in there, but essentially if you were reading that, um, I don't want to suggest to you that you wouldn't take any notice of it, but it has no practical application. It's not like reading, uh, you know, last week's Parsha was full of mitzvahs. Parsha Skiseitze is full of mitzvahs. Every posuk is a mitzvah. If you look at Parsha Shoftim, there's mitzvahs. You look at Parsha Mishpatim, there's mitzvahs. Many of the parshas in the Torah have mitzvahs which are relevant to us. By the way, Parshas Kisavai has the beginning of Parshas Kisavai. It's also got mitzvahs, but this doesn't seem to be a mitzvah that is relevant to us. This seems to be an instruction that was given by Moshe Rabbeinu, uh, as I said right when I began, that this was a housekeeping matter. This was the way that the Jewish nation was going to be able to take, as it were, the Torah with them into Eretz Israel by inscribing the Torah onto rocks. And the day that they put those rocks up on Mount Aval, they will celebrate um, by bringing Carbonus to Hashem and Carbonus that they're going to eat as well and celebrate and have a wonderful party. And that's the end of the story. There's nothing more that's going to happen. That's what it seems to be saying. Now, I've not put here this. I'm now going to source number two. I'm not actually put in here the, the uh, Ibn Ezra and the Ramban because I saw that the Tur, the Tur HaOruch, actually quotes them. And we're going to see that what the Ibn Ezra says, um, he speaks in the name of Rabbeinu Sadia Gaon, and what the Ramban say appear, at least in the first instance, simply, be, simply to be trying to make sense of what was written on these stones. So the question I'm going to ask you is this, how big is a Sefer Torah? How many words does it have? I don't know the exact number. I know that uh, traditionally speaking, we always say that there are um, there's uh, 613,000 letters in the Torah. There isn't. Um, there are probably something like 300 or 320,000 letters in the Torah. But you'd have to find an awful big rock in order to be able to write the entire Torah on it. And it's going to take a very long time. It's, not, it's, it's going to take even longer than writing a safer Torah on cluff, on, uh, on the hide of an animal. And I would add something else. There doesn't seem to be any purpose to this. Why, if he's telling them to write a Torah, why doesn't he simply tell them, write a thousand Sifrei Torah, um, you know, there's however many, the 600,000, sorry, there's 600,000 letters traditionally in a Sefer Torah, not 613,000, but actually that's not the number at all. Perhaps if you count all the open spaces, that's the number that you'll reach. But, uh, this is a subject I've spoken about in the past. There's, there's something in the 300,000s. I can't remember the exact number, but it's, an, it's a tremendous number of letters. But why write them on rock? Surely you should write them on a Sefer Torah. Wouldn't that be more useful? I've got another question, even before we begin looking at the Torah Aruch. Where are these rocks today? Do you know the answer to that question? Any of you are archaeologists? Do you know where? We don't know where they are. We've never found them. There's no archaeological dig in any place around the center of Eretz Yisrael where we have found these rocks upon which were inscribed the Torah. So we don't even know what was inscribed. But it's interesting, if it was so important for them to write it down, why weren't these um, rocks preserved as relics of this extraordinary mitzvah. If it was such an important mitzvah for them to carry out, why have we lost these stones? Where are they? But let's deal with the question at hand, whether or not the whole Torah was written on these stones, because as I've said, it's a lot, a lot of work to do if you're the one who's been asked to inscribe them. So 
says the Torah Aruch, you shall inscribe on them all the words of this Torah. Ibn Ezra writes, I've, I've just put the translation here for ease sake. Um, Ibn Ezra writes, quoting Rabbi Nisadiyagon, that it was what was written on them, what was actually written on these stones. It was a list of the commandments that was inscribed on these stones. That means all the mitzvahs in the Torah. It was, it contained, or the text was, the 613 mitzvahs of the Torah were written on these rocks in a manner similar to, and, he, and this is what Rabbeinu Sadia says, the well-known work, Halachas Gedolis. What's Halachas Gedolis? It's a 9th century list of all the mitzvahs in the Torah. It's the first um, list, um, uh, a comprehensive list of the 613 mitzvahs. Interestingly enough, although the Gemara in Makkas, towards the end of Makkas, almost at the end of Maseches Makkas, um, Rabbi Simloi mentions this idea that there were 248 positive commandments, 365 negative you know, commandments forbidding you to do stuff, and the combination is 613. There's 613 mitzvahs, and he brings scriptural evidence that that was the number of mitzvahs in the Torah. But the Talmud itself doesn't actually list these mitzvahs. And while we can try and extract information from the Talmud as to, as to which mitzvahs were given in the Torah, it's actually really hard to pin down the exact number of mitzvahs based on the information that we have in the Talmud. As a result of that, in the centuries that followed, there was obviously discussion as to what mitzvah in the, is considered to be a mitzvah from the Torah, what mitzvah is not from the Torah, is Torah Shabal Peh, what is rabbinic mitzvah, what is something which is a derabonon, and the first comprehensive guide, comprehensive list of the, all those mitzvahs was a sefer called Halachas Gedolis. In fact, we know that Maimonides was extremely unhappy with the list presented to us by Halachas Gedolis. Why? Because he disagreed with many of the assertions in there. Rabbeinu Sadia Gaon, by the way, also wrote his own list of mitzvahs, and um, his, his, he's another Sefer Mitzvah. He was uh, um, one of the Ge'onim. He was one of the great rabbis in what, in, I guess you can call it Babylon, but in Mesopotamia. Um, he also was in Egypt. Um, but what Rabbeinu Sadia Gaon was saying, and um, perhaps this is why he wrote the Sefer Mitzvah. Um, and, and we know the Rambam wrote a different Sefer Mitzvah, and that the Ramban disagreed with the Rambam, and there are various other lists of mitzvahs. But what Rabbeinu Sadia is saying in principle, as quoted by the Ibn Ezra, is that the stones obviously could not have contained all the mitzvahs of the Torah. It, was, it wouldn't be possible to inscribe every mitzvah onto these stones. Therefore, what they must have contained when it says, Kola Torah Hazois, what it means is it's a list of all the mitzvahs in the Torah. And he says these are the, com the commandments are recorded in the form of a list of warnings of what to do and what not to do. And what do the words ba'er heitev mean at the end of Pasuk Ches? Remember we said it, uh, it means very clearly. What does that mean? So normally, says the Torah Aruch, these words are understood to mean in clearly comprehensible language. The words ba'er heitev, this phrase in Hebrew, ba'er heitev, means in a language that can be understood. But in this context, actually, what it means is in clearly legible script. So when these uh, commandments, as the Ibn Ezra is suggesting, were written down, the, they were written ba'er heitev, 
by somebody whose writing was very clear or inscriptions were very clear so that they could be read and they could be seen um, at a much later date. Some commentaries, says the Torah Aruch, claim that the entire text of the Torah was inscribed on these stones with careful attention given to the tagim, okay, to the little crowns. You know the little crowns that on the Hebrew letters, the font that we use in a Sefer Torah? And there was careful attention given to these tagim. And in addition, the text was translated and inscribed in 70 languages. Gosh. So according to some opinions, not only was the Torah at that stage written in Hebrew, it was written in 70 languages, and there's a whole body of a commentary here, which I've not included in this shir, which says that this was the opportunity for the Gentile nations to take on board the mitzvahs of the Torah, and they wasted that opportunity. Um, the Gemara says that's why they are punished, because here they had the opportunity of being able to participate in the uh, morality and in the God-awareness that is contained in the mitzvahs of the Torah, in the Torah itself, and they didn't do so. How could they have done that? Because it wasn't just written in Hebrew, it was written in all the 70 languages. In any event, says the Torah either the stones, in that case, were extremely large, very large they must have been, you know, to Mount Rushmore size, or a miracle occurred that enabled the Sofrim, the scribes, to accomplish this. We'll go now to page two, which, and we're going to look at what Shadal says. Remember that uh, Shadal was an Italian uh, uh, commentary. He was a rabbi in Italy, clean-shaven rabbi at the beginning um, and middle of the 19th century. Came from a very famous family. What does the Lamad stand for in Shadal? Lutzato. He was distantly related to the Ramchal, who also came from the Lutzato family. His name was Shlomo David. Uh, Lutzato, and he wrote a, a, a kind of rational approach, a commentary on the Torah, which is just on this side of traditional interpretation. He didn't drift over into the version of interpretation that uh, Mendelssohn was accused of, and therefore it's somewhat acceptable to use his parish, although it's not widely used, but it is available. You can buy it in, in the Swarim stores, and obviously it's, it's available online. So we've heard two interpretations as to what it is, the um, stones, what was written on the stones. First interpretation is Ibn Ezra, Rabbi Nusadiyagon, which is that it just contained a list of all the mitzvahs, the mitzvahs say and the mitzvahs loisase. Then we have the Ramban, which uh, tell um, and that's the other um, the other uh, the reference to the other commentaries is Baroisham. The head of them is the Ramban. The Ramban says that it contained the entire Torah, um, the entire Torah meaning everything from Bereshis until Leine uh, Kol at the end of Devarim, and not just in Hebrew but in the seventy languages of the Gentile nations. Those are the two interpretations we've heard so far. Shadal adds a third one. And he says, and he, by the way, this is, he didn't make this up, he gets it from other sources, but he, he presents it very succinctly. He says, perhaps as in the opinion of Ralbag, in the commentary on Yehoshua Perikhes. Why Yehoshua Perikhes? Because there we see uh, this ceremony taking place. So what's spoken about here in Perik Chofches, uh, Chofzain, I believe it is, um, in Chavzain, in Dvarim, in Yeshua, Perik Ches is actually where it happened. They 
they put these rocks, they built the Mizbeach, they bought the Oilois, they bought the Shlomim, etc. And the Rabag says over there, the, what does it mean when it says all the words of the Torah? It means that uh, it refers to the blessings and the curses. So you know that Parshas Kitavai has the Brachos and the Klolos, which Moshe Rabbeinu, uh, you know, I've given Shurim on this as well. We don't, we call them blessings and curses, but actually these, I would say these uh, um, collectively speaking, are the consequences of the actions of the Jewish nation once they enter into the promised land. So if you observe all the mitzvahs of Hashem, then you will be showered with blessings. And if you don't, there's going to be all types of reminders, unpleasant reminders that will come your way, um, and which we refer to as klolois, but let's rather refer to them as consequences. And you know what's going to be written on these rocks, says Ralbag, or what was written on these rocks, and Shadal is quoting Ralbag, uh, Rabag is Gersonides, uh, then read all the words of the Torah, the blessing and the curse. The fact that it says, Kol Divrei HaTorah, the fact that it says that in Yehoshua and then speaks about Brocha and Klola means that over here, when it says, as Kol HaTorah Hazois, it's talking about this particular portion of Kisavoy, which contains the blessings and the curses, that was what was written on the rock. So that's the third opinion as to what was written on the stone. It wasn't the 613 mitzvahs. It wasn't the whole Torah from beginning to end. It was just this parsha that deals with the blessings and the curses that we have here in Parsha's Kisavoy. That's Shadal's opinion. Um, so now I'm, I'm going to turn to somebody whose uh, shiurim are recorded online. His name is Rabbi Tzvi Shimon, and he is, uh, you can look him up. He has a wonderful range of shiurim online. He quotes Rabbi David Tzvi Hoffman, who has a fascinating insight that obviously could only have been possible once the, um, the whole range of um, 19th century archaeologists had descended on the Middle East, and they began to discover incredible sites of archaeological interest and by the way they still continue you know when if you walk around the old city of Jerusalem you'll see there's archaeological digs going on to this day and all types of things are being found on a constant basis there are new discoveries so David Svi Hoffman he lived from 1843 to 1921 he became the rector, the director of the Berlin Rabbinical Seminary, and that was before Rabbi Chil Yaakov Weinberg. He was one of the senior, if not the most senior rabbi in Germany in his day. He was an extraordinary man, and he wrote a parish on the Torah. It's been published. It's not widely known. He also wrote, by the way, a number of others for him, not least of which is Shailas Atchuvas, also not looked at so much. He's a bit of a forgotten figure, but a very um, erudite scholar who not only introduced traditional ideas into his commentaries, but often because he was so close to those who were studying in the, in the academic world, brings somewhat academic concepts into his traditional commentary. And here he says he brings archaeological support to show that writing the whole Torah on stone is not actually such a far-fetched idea and maybe didn't require a miracle. Why? Because we know that the Code of Hammurabi, which is a code of law from the 18th century BCE. Can you imagine that? Think, imagine that where we are now. We're now in 2000. This was 1800 years before the Common Era. That means 3800 years ago, there was a code of law that was written. It was written by a man called Hammurabi, who was the king of Babylon, which is today where Iraq, somewhere roughly where Iraq is. 
And that code, by the way, has many parallels in the Torah, but it was inscribed on stone. Now, it's composed of 232 separate articles of law. There's a, a fairly a sizable introduction and there's a fairly sizable conclusion. And they have found, this is what Rabbi David Svi Hoffman writing 100 years ago, or more, must be more than 100 years ago, writes. Um, it was inscribed on one large basalt rock in tiny letters. So they were very skilled um, I don't know how to put it, masons, let's say, who knew how to inscribe in tiny letters onto rocks so that information could be preserved. I'm guessing this was before in the age of ink and paper. They didn't have the availability of ink and paper. Um, in Egypt, they'd begun to use papyrus, but perhaps not in Mesopotamia. They would record information by um, etching it onto rocks, and they Actually, it's been found there was a, a very large basalt rock on which the entire code of Hammurabi is inscribed. Therefore, in our particular case, says Rabdovitz V. Hoffman, in which the number of stones is not specified, it doesn't say one stone. By the way, the tradition is that there were 12, but we don't know exactly how many stones there were. It is entirely plausible to suggest that the whole Torah was inscribed on stone. And that being the case, according to the source cited by the Rambam, Ramban, that this Torah rock served as a prototype, um, that this was the source of information, it was an authoritative version of the Torah, in the biblical period, when texts were made, how were texts made? How did they actually know what text, what the real text was? They had to have an original text, and they used that original text more, much more recently, we know about in the around the 9th century or 8th century of the Common Era, that means rough just over a thousand years ago, there was the Aleppo Codex. That was the Codex. Codex is the word that we use. The Codex is the original source of all the Hebrew texts that we know to be written in the Torah. That means it's not being corrupted by any errors or mistakes or, you know, or um, any kind of a duplication, that in the Aleppo text was the text that was used. If there was any question as to what was written in the Torah, we went to the Aleppo, Aleppo Codex, and we used that text to um, justify that which we had written. So now, in those days, there was no Aleppo Codex, because this was, you know, thousands of years before. And so how did they know what the text of the Torah was? They copied it from an original text. Well, what was the original text? This stone was the original master text, and it was hugely important. The Torah text requires utmost precision. Every letter, and even every decoration of the letters is very important in order to prevent corruption of the text and to ensure the preservation of the original version of the Torah, the Torah itself, here in Parshaski Savai, Moshe Rabbeinu, commanded the establishment of an authoritative text to be visible and accessible to all. This was the reason for the commandment to inscribe the Torah on stone and set it up in the heart of the country on Mount Eval, in Shechem. So what we've just heard here, Reb Tzvi Shimon's interpretation of Reb David Tzvi Hoffman, he's, he's added a level of context here. 
which helps us understand what this commandment was about. And also, it answers the question that I uh, mentioned at the early part, during the early part of the shear. Why don't we have these stones today? They're no longer necessary because we have the text of the Torah uncorrupted. Like I just said, we had the Aleppo Codex. Today we have printed Art Scroll Chumashin that we can look at. So we have the text of the Torah. We don't need a codex. But in the age before Art Scroll, in the age before printing, in the age before it was easy to transcribe something um, and preserve it if it was written on uh, parchment or papyrus, you needed uh, an original codex, an original text, and that text here, the Torah commanded by Moshe Rabbeinu, was um, inscribed onto rocks, and that is why we needed it. So now um, it helps us understand, first of all, by what Rabbi David Zvi Hoffman says as to why it wasn't a miracle, because the Code of Hammurabi also was written in tiny, tiny letters, and people could decipher it so that they could know it and they could record it elsewhere. It could be copied from that basalt rock that has been found by archaeologists. So we dismiss the Shadal's explanation mentioned by Ral Bug, and we dismiss the Ibn Ezra's idea, which is based on Rabbeinu Sadia Gaon. And on this basis, the reason that the Torah commands us to write the Torah and call our Torah Hazois is not because we want to record the curses and the blessings, not because we want to record a basic list of mitzvahs, but because we need an original text of the Torah. But the Orachayim, which is the, our next uh, uh, source, um, it's on page two, the Orachayim does not agree. The Ura, I wouldn't say doesn't agree. He has a different way of looking at this. And I've translated this into English. Um, so he says that he, he really is looking for a purpose for this commandment and perhaps not knowing about the possibility of being able to record the whole Torah in tiny letters, as was in the case in the code, with the code of Hammurabi. He is looking for a purpose for this commandment. Maybe it aligns with the idea we've just mentioned based on Rabbi David Tzvi Hoffman and Rabbi uh, Tzvi Shimon, or maybe it's a totally different purpose and that one is not the correct one. He comes up with an incredible idea as to why it was so important and he bases himself on the very convoluted posuk that I identified earlier on when I read through the psukim. He bases himself on that to come up with a purpose for this particular mitzvah that makes eminent sense and actually is very heartwarming and wonderful. Listen to what he says. It says in the, in the Pasuk, in order that you may enter the land, etc. Rabbi Ram Ibn Ezra explains this to mean that when you commence observing his commandments, i.e. by inscribing the stones, because this was the very first mitzvah that was unique to those uh, members of the Jewish nation who were entering into the Holy Land, in that situation, having observed this very first mitzvah, you will enter the Holy Land as a reward for this. This will be the platform for your entry. This is your ticket into Eretz Yisrael. Ramban understands the words, in order that you will enter, Laman Asher Tavor, as a commandment to inscribe the entire Torah on these stones at the time the Israelites would cross the Yardin, as opposed to Ibn Ezra wrote that only the actual commandments were inscribed on these stones. Now, truthfully speaking, um, Orachim is not happy with this because he says, if that's the case, 
there are words in the Pasuk that don't make any sense. In other words, the Torah never has superfluous phrases and words. Never. Even as we know from the Talmud, there can be an extra letter that can teach us an enormous amount. And here with this mitzvah, there seems to be a lot of superfluous words which are unnecessary in terms of conveying the information if you're saying that this information is Laman Tavor that you may enter into the land. And he explains what he means. I do not believe, says Arachai, that either one of these two explanations does justice to the plain meaning of our verse. Another thing we have to explain are the words, Kashadibar Hashem, Elokei Avotecha, Lach, as Hashem, your God of your fathers, has said to you. The Torah should have just written the word Lach to you immediately after the words Kasher Diber. Kasher Diber, Hashem, Lach. And there would have been no doubt about who had said this to the Jewish nation. Why does it need to say, says the Orachim, Elokei Avotecha, the God of your fathers? Says the Orachim. The Torah had to consider the fact that previously Moshe Rabbeinu had told the Bnei Israel that the fact that they would enter the Holy Land was not due to their own merits, but as a consequence of the wickedness of the Canaanites who were residing there at the time. That's one reason. So it's more, um, as we say in Purim language, Orur Homon than Baruch Mordechai. It's not because the Jewish people are so deserving that they went into Eretz Yisrael, but because the Canaanim are not very deserving, and they're obviously going to be um, expelled from the land. Now that the land will be empty because they won't be there, you're going to be the ones who inherit it, but not based on your merit. That's one thing that Moshe Rabbeinu said. Another reason given by the Torah for the Bnei Yisrael entering and taking possession of the land was, of course, the promise, the bris, the covenant that was made by God with their forefather, with Avraham, with Avraham, Yitzhak and Yaakov, it was repeated again to Moshe. And if that's the case, the Torah here had to state that fulfillment of a particular mitzvah would be a factor in the Bnei Yisrael, the Israelites entering the Holy Land due to their own mitzvah input. Okay, now listen carefully. This is what the Orachim says. The positioning of the word loch at the end of the verse is an arbitrary decision by Moshe Rabbeinu. It could have just said, listen to what the Pasuk could have said, it could have said, Right? This is what God said to or the, Lord, the God of your fathers, as he said. Why does it say loch? Why does it add, why is he personalizing to say it to you? That was deliberate. That was Moshe Rabbeinu, who's the author of the Posuk. Of course, God later included it in the Torah. The pattern of the whole Posuk should be understood as follows. Listen carefully. This is Orachayim um, uh, parsing a Posuk in the Torah so that we understand the purpose of a mitzvah that seems to have no relevance to us today. Here, listen carefully. In order that your entry into the land which God, your God, gives you, in accordance with what he said to your forefathers, will be because you are entitled by your own merit, because you carry out this commandment, so that you do not have to rely on the covenant God made with your ancestors. In other words, Moshe Rabbeinu took this mitzvah and turned it into a pivotal mitzvah that would enable the Jewish nation to inhabit Eretz Yisrael 
on their own merit, without having to rely on the bris that God had made with Avram, Yitzhak and Yaakov, and without having to rely on the fact that the Canaanim, the Canaanites, are not deserving, because what happens if they're the Jewish nation are not deserving? So he gave them this specific mitzvah, write the whole Torah down, so that you, by writing this Torah down on a rock and preserving it as a reminder of who you are as a Jewish nation, you will be deserving in and of yourselves, in your own right, to inhabit Eretz Yisrael. It's a beautiful, beautiful Erachayim. Let's look at the Chiba Yaseira, Rabbi Huda Henkin, and he has an interesting take on this. He says, the Kosav Ta'alein is called Divrei HaToyra Hazois Ba'ovrecha. So the word Ba'ovrecha, he says, is superfluous. Kvanema It says elsewhere, on the day that you cross over the Jordan River. So why does it have to say again Ba'ovrecha when you cross over? That you need to write it down. What does the word Ba'ovrecha add to the equation? He says this is a hint to the Torah Shabbat Peh that will ultimately be written down. This entire rock exercise, writing the Torah on stones, is a hint, a broad hint to the fact that ultimately, even though we have a written Torah, one day the oral Torah, the oral traditions that accompany the written Torah will have to be written down. Even though we know that those oral traditions are really something that we do not have permission to record in writing, they have to be passed from generation to generation by, as it were, word of mouth. So when there is a time to do things for God, we can upend the Torah. That is something which is in the hands of the Jewish nation at a moment of great crisis. We need to do things to change up what we observe so that we can, as it were, make sure that we sustain ourselves in anticipation of the Messianic era. The Zehu Ba'avracha, Ba'aveira. It is because of our descent as uh, spiritual people. We've, Avera means, what does that word Avera mean? Chait means sin. What does the word Avera mean? We've traveled, traveled over. That means we've gone over a certain red line. Somehow we're no longer where we were. We're in a new place and it's not a good place. That place, Ba'avrecha. When we've traveled, that's when you need to write this Torah, immediately after emerging from this bubble, this incredible bubble that was 40 years in the wilderness with Moshe Rabbeinu, you will be in a state of, of Recha. That will be the first moment when you'll need to write down the Torah. But that moment is going to repeat itself time after time. And we know that the Anshei Knesset Hagdola, beginning and Ezra and Nehemiah, that they began this process by mandating Shachris Mincha Mariv with a particular text the text that we're familiar with, Shemona Esrei, and uh, the, uh, all the details of davening. And as time elapsed, and as sects began to uh, dominate, different sects which were not observant in their Judaism began to dominate Jewish life. Uh, Chazal, beginning with the Zugais that are recorded at the beginning of Periki Ovis, which we learnt about at the beginning of Perik Aleph, we're already now on Perik Base in our, in our Shi'urim on Periki Ovis. 
But those Zugais, uh, for example, we saw that uh, Shimon ben Shatach was one of them. They were fighting with the Tzidukim and the Baisusim. Later on, we have Beis Shammai and Beis Hillel. We have Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, who we're going to be speaking about today. We have um, all the various members of Chazal, who recorded the Mishnais. They began that process, and they began to record Torah Shabbat Peh. Then it went on from there, the Gemara. And all the subsequent codes, the Rambam, the Tur, the Shulchan Aruch, the Ramah, and all the many other codes that have come into existence. That's all Torah Shabbat pair that needed to be recorded. Why? Because Safta Alein Meskol Divrei Torah Hazois Be'ovrecha. When you travel over that red line, time for you to start recording the Torah so that crossing that red line is not going to mean your descent into oblivion. Let's now look at our final piece. It's a very long piece. The bottom of page three is the English translation. It's the Shem Mishmuel. And he says, and this is a piece that's taken out of his um, a much longer portion that was written uh, in 1911 and uh, was later published. The Shem Mishmuel was the Sochachover, an incredible parish, a Hasidic parish on the Torah. And here we're going to have a much broader understanding of this mitzvah in an intriguing um, way, in a way that's going to help us understand how we can in, uh, um, engage with this mitzvah, not look at it in a, in, um, in a, a historic context, but see it as something that is actually um, having an effect, a profound impact on our own lives. Let us consider, says the Shemi Shmuel, let us consider this most unusual mitzvah, the writing of a Torah not in the normal manner, but instead on stones. It is noteworthy that the normal material on which the text of a Torah is written is parchment, right? The skin of a kosher animal, which comes from the animal kingdom. Whereas on this occasion, it was to be written on stone, which is an inanimate subject, substance. This fundamental difference holds the key to understanding the purpose of this one-time mitzvah, which was performed as Klal Yisrael entered into the Promised Land. Says the Sochachov, he says, My holy father, my holy father noted that the whole function of writing a Sefer Torah is to fix the ideas contained therein firmly in the heart of the writer. I gave a share earlier this week, and I've given it before, about the last mitzvah of the Torah. Do you know what the last mitzvah of the Torah is? You need to write a Sefer Torah. That's the 613th mitzvah of the Torah. Everybody agrees. The question is, why does everybody need to write a Sefer Torah? And what about if you've never written one? Have you not done this mitzvah? Should you do it? Shouldn't you do it? We're going to be um, posting that share online because it was recorded. And therefore, um, we're going to post it onto my website. And you can find out far more information about the last mitzvah of the Torah on that. Uh, the title of the share is, Can a Robot Be Jewish? So you'll have to look that up, hopefully be posted later this week or early next week. Anyway, he says that um, the idea that you write a Sefer Torah is because you as the writer are going to fix the idea. When you write something down, somehow it gains traction in your mind and in your heart in a way that is not quite the same as if you just read it. You need to write it down. And he says... This is expressed by the following pasuk. It's in Mishlei, Perigimel pasuk Gimel. Kosveim aluach 
libecha. Write them, the mitzvahs, upon the tablet of your heart. You know what that means? That you have to make your heart into one of the luchos. That you need to write things down. When you write things down, they're going to have a much stronger impact on you than if you simply listen to them or read them. And he continues by saying that the parchment which is used for a Sefer Torah is definitely intended to reflect this great aim. The skin of the animal must first be treated. You have to treat the skin, the parchment, right? Otherwise, skin isn't parchment. You've got to treat it before you start writing. If untreated skin is used, the whole exercise is completely futile because the writing won't work. By the way, it's not going to work because it's not going to write as well, but it's also going to be invalid because the mitzvah is that you need to treat the parchment. And therefore, if you write a safer Torah on untreated hide, then the Torah is going to be posel. What does this symbolize? Says the Shemishmol, this symbolizes the fact that one needs preparation before Torah can be effectively received. Just as the skin needs refining before the writing can be valid, so too one needs to take steps to remove any traces of personal defilement before beginning your Torah development. Okay, sounds nice, beautiful idea, isn't it? The reason you need to prepare parchment is because you need to prepare yourself. In the same way as you prepare parchment to receive Torah, you need to prepare yourself to receive Torah. Says the Shemishmuel, there's a problem with that. Because how do you prepare yourself for Torah? How do you cleanse yourself? By studying Torah. It's only Torah study which enables a person to overcome any intrinsic character defects. We know it from the Zohar. The Zohar says, come and see, no man is ever purified except with the words of Torah. So how then, says the Shebi Shmuel, can this vicious circle be broken? It seems that to achieve purification you need Torah, but to learn Torah you require prior purification. So how are we going to get out of this problem? Quite a problem. It's a conundrum. It's a puzzle. Let's see what the Shemi Shmuel says. He says as follows. Actually, we can resolve this difficulty by suggesting that there are two distinct facets to the Jewish heart. The deepest and most fundamental aspect is the seat of the divine soul. This cannot be defiled. It is impervious to alien forces. The second more external manifestation of the Jewish heart is much more impressionable. It is able to receive influence from the outside. What does this mean? It means that while it can receive good influences, it can also be defiled by bad influences. Now, it is this secondary aspect which one is instructed to purify. The other part is pure in and of itself. It doesn't need purification. This purification will enable it to accept and retain Torah knowledge and ideals. The way this works is totally clear, says the Shemishmur. The inner aspect of the heart is always capable of instigating a program of Torah study and mitzvah observance. By stimulating this inner, this godly element, you'll be able to influence, you'll enable its influence to spread to the more coarse outer manifestation, which will have a cleansing and purifying effect. Once this stage has been reached, even the secondary aspect of the heart will be ready to receive the Torah. 
Without this prior purification, nothing positive will result. You see what the Shem Mishmul is saying? It is the first stage to which the Zohar is referring, in which the inner core of the Jew grasps the Torah and allows it to spread to the rest of his personality. The second step is similar to the writing of a Sefer Torah, in which the skin is prepared before the writing begins. The hide, the skin, hints at the outer part of the personality, which must first be prepared before it can receive, successfully receive the Torah. This is hinted at by the very requirement to write a Sefer Torah on parchment, which is the product of an animal. The animal world is subject to change. The passage of time affects an animal. And the processes of nature ensure that after a certain period, the animal's cells are replenished. You are made up of cells that didn't exist when you were born. That's the whole process of regeneration that exists in your body. This symbolizes the outer part of the heart, which is also subject to change. For through the influence of the inner, non-defilable part, it can be improved and sanctified. However, the inner, intrinsically holy part of the personality is unchanging and it is unchangeable. As such, you know what it is? What would you call that part of the heart? The unchangeable part of the heart? It's a stone. That's what represent, it represents. It's represented by a stone, which is the least changing entity in creation. Now, when the Jewish nation is about to enter into Eretz Yisrael, they're going to make a new start in a new country. They're going into a new country. They've never been there before. They needed a tangible reminder of the correct way in which to begin their service of Hashem. So God required them, commanded them to erect stones and write the text of the Torah on them, not parchment. He didn't tell them write a thousand sifrei Torah on parchment. He said write a Torah on stone. This indicates that the first element of divine service, you know where it comes from? It comes from the innermost unchanging part of a person's personality. They were to try to arouse the holy attachment to Torah, which lay deep inside them and allow it to pervade and purify the rest of their personalities. It doesn't matter that we don't have these stones anymore. It doesn't make any difference that these stones are no longer there. Do you know why? Because we have a record of it in the Torah. The Shemish Mul is saying we don't actually need the stones. The stones were just there as a symbol and they needed to be there as a reminder to the initial generation of the Jewish nation who inherited, who um, became uh, the conquerors of the Holy Land, that their inner soul was always going to be pure. And it's only their outer soul which lacks the level of purity which they need to work on. But that message is there for all of us right now by reading Parshas Kisovoi. You need to know that in and of yourself, you're a good person. In and of yourself, you're somebody who contains Torah and you contain spirituality. You're, you're a positive force. You're not the animal, the skin, the cluff that needs to be uh, worked on. At the very heart of who you are, you are the best that you can be now. Unfortunately, we were given a skin, we were given a cluff, and that does need to be worked on. And we need to do the necessary work, but we have the foundation. We have the rock with the Torah written on it, inscribed on it, right at our very core. Now we need to take the cluff, the skin that is our bodies, and turn it into a Torah as well. We'll leave it here for today.